You're listening to Radio MD. She's a chiropractic holistic physician, best-selling author, international speaker, entrepreneur, and talk show host. She's Dr. Suzanne Bennett. It's time now for Wellness for Life Radio. Here's Dr. Suzanne. Neurodevelopment disorders are disabilities associated primarily with functioning of the neurological system and brain. Now, children with neurodevelopment disorders can experience difficulties with language and speech, motor skills and behavior, memory issues, learning or other neurological functions. Now, with the symptoms and behaviors of neurodevelopment disabilities often changes or evolves as a child grows older. Now, some disabilities are permanent even. Diagnosis and treatment of these disorders can be difficult, and it's really frustrating both for the child and parent. And based on a 2009 survey of parental responses, approximately 15% of children in the United States ages 3 to 17 were affected by neurodevelopment disorders, including ADHD, learning disabilities, intellectual disability, autism, conduct disorder, stuttering or stammering, and other developmental delays. Among these conditions, ADHD and learning disabilities have the greatest prevalence. Today we have Tara Hunkin. She is a functional nutritional therapy practitioner and a certified GAPS practitioner. She's the founder of My Child Will Thrive, and that is MyChildWillThrive.com, as well as her podcast. And I'm so excited to have Tara here. Thank you so much for being on Wellness for Life. Uh, I'm so excited to be here with you today, Dr. Suzanne. I appreciate the chance to to talk to people about um, this really important topic. Oh, absolutely. You know, um, you're, what I'm, I've found was that your Child Will Thrive website, which is amazing because it's for parents who are desperately wanting to recover uh, and, and help their child recover from neurodevelopment disorders. What lead, led you to create this fantastic resource? Thank you very much. Uh, well, it's a passion project, really. I, um, when I had my child, and she's now uh, over 15 years old now, uh, I didn't have uh, resources to go to when I realized that she was missing her developmental milestones. And we all, uh, you know, as we, we decide to have children, um, we all end up with that book, What to Expect When You're Expecting and What to Expect in the First Year, et cetera. But there aren't a lot of resources out there for parents that hit um, bumps in their children's development and it, as to what the next steps are. So when we started to see um, a lot of uh, challenges with our child, I was lacking resources, and of course the internet isn't what it is today, um, 15 years ago. So it's, uh, I, I created My Child Will Thrive for parents like myself who have a child that is, are, has been missing milestones and they aren't finding the answers they're, they're looking for and, and wanting for their child, which is that uh, what we now know, which is the brain can change. So the things that um, ha- happen with our children in terms of missed developmental milestones they, um, the brain is plastic, um, so there's uh, ability for positive, pr- positive neuroplasticity and positive change to happen, and um, there are a lot of different modalities that we can use in order to improve their function and help, help them thrive in their daily lives. Mm, thank you. Uh, when I started my practice around 30 years ago, you know what, autism and neurodevelopment disorders in children, they just were not commonly diagnosed. I, you didn't see a lot of that. Uh, now it's very, very high level. Um, 
What what do you think is going on, and why is there such a rapid increase in these issues with our children today? Yeah, I mean it, it's funny. Every time I get in a um, well Uber these days when I'm traveling to a conference, it's the most commonly asked question um, when people find out what I do. And I think the most simple way to put this is that there's no one thing, but it what it is is it's other than a rapidly changing environment which has created this perfect storm of factors that have impacted our children's health and development. Um, when I'm talking about the, the types of factors that I'm talking about are, are things like our food. Obviously, as a, a nutritionist, um, I, I look heavily at food in terms of what that's doing. Our children need the nutrients in order um, for their bodies to function appropriately. And when they're nutrient deficient, um, we, we're going to see um, sub suboptimal um, functioning within their bodies and their brains as well. Um, unfortunately, we're exposed to more toxins than we ever have been b- before in uh, the history of the world with the change in our environment in terms of industrialization. Um, there are new uh, toxins that are, are, are introduced into the environment pretty much almost on a daily basis these days. And in addition to that, we have um, stress in our lives uh, that we've never had before. Um, that can be a combination of stresses, external stressors, like um, lifestyle um, choices that we make now around electronics and um, electromagnetic fr- frequencies that are, are in existence in our environment that we didn't have before. But there also are things like um, not getting proper sleep and um, emotional stress. Uh, actually, recent research, just as recent as uh, January 2018, um, the University of Ottawa actually looked at a longitudinal study of parents um, and children to assess the role of maternal stress had on later development and behavior. And they found that mothers who experience high levels of stress during their pregnancy are more than twice as likely as less stressed mothers uh, to have a child diagnosed with ADHD or a conduct disorder um, or other behavioral challenges. So when we look at all these factors together, and like I said, there's no one thing, unfortunately. There's usually a tipping point for a particular child, but it usually isn't one factor. It's this perfect storm of changes that we've seen in our environment over the last um, 40 or 50 years and more. Mm. Well, you know, which would, with all what you're saying, obviously what it is at, what I'm hearing, of course, and we've said this before in other shows is that this is not due to only genetics, right? It's not a genetic problem. Like autism is not a genetic, sure. There's certain genetic markers that they see, uh, that are common when it comes to, let's say methylation, and the ability for them to process fats properly, et cetera. But it's not a genetic disease or or condition. It really has to do with epigenetics, and that's exactly how you explained it. Well said, Tara, about the environment and the toxins and everything that's happening in our lives. And so with that being said, in your life, when you went through this 15 years ago and you found out that your daughter was having issues, you know, and these milestone markers were not, um, were, they're not hit, tell us what did you see? What were the warning signs that you can share that our listeners can look out for as well for their, for their children? Yeah, and I think that 
it's, it is really important. So the, the first thing I'm going to say is that for parents that we all have sort of that gut instinct as uh, mothers and even and, and fathers and even as new parents. So this was my first child. So one of the challenges for me was not knowing um, what to expect, um, you know, because it was my first time through and, and how to, you know, you're always, when you have more than one child, typically parents are comparing their children, even though we swear we're not, um, <laughs> you're comparing their, their, their development. But not having that benchmark, I looked to what the regular benchmarks that they give us out there. Um, so the, the typical um, milestones that we want to look for are in a few different categories. So gross motor, fine motor, um, skills, language skills, cognitive skills, and social skills. So an example of gross motor skills would be things like rolling over at an age-appropriate time, um, sitting up, uh, it can be crawling, uh, standing, um, or, or walking and running. So there are different, obviously, different points in time when um, our children do those types of things. Um, there can be things like uh, fine motor skills, so using the hands or fingers to eat. So if your child has a difficulty doing that at an age-appropriate time, if they're having difficulty dressing, um, being um, obviously putting their clothes on or butting, butting things up or, or dealing with zippers, um, playing, um, use, they use different fine motor skills. And obviously when they get to the age of writing or doing art, you're going to see it in that. Um, language skills is obviously the one that everybody gets really excited about is speaking, but earlier on it can be things like using gestures and also just there's, there's both expressive speech delays being the speaking and then there are um, also comprehension delays. So um, understanding what other people are saying. So if you think that your child is not understanding um, uh, what you're saying, that would be another point for concern. Cognitive skills um, that we look for is obviously the ability to learn and, and solving problems and remembering and reasoning. So obviously these skills are different at, at different age points, and we're, we're, there are actual benchmarks that are out there that you can find for those. And then social skills, um, responding appropriately to others and having friendships um, with family and friends, um, showing affection and cooperating when required. So when we start seeing some of these being missed, a lot of times what we're told um, is that, one, if it's a boy that they develop later or not to worry about it yet or um, that we're just being, um, you know, a lot of parents that I've spoken to over the years and including myself is that, you know, just not to worry about it right away. And what I'm saying, say, would say to parents is that it's not about worrying about it, but it's about noticing these things and, and documenting them and also just you know, looking into ways that we can make sure that they are meeting these milestones. Because what we know, now know with respect to how the brain develops is that if, for example, a milestone is delayed or skipped, um, so for example, a lot of parents get super excited when their child just skips um, uh, crawling and goes right to walking, um, or they don't crawl appropriately on their hands and knees. They do a different type of crawl, and we think that that's really cute or um, different or whatever. We actually know that those motions are important for the development of the brain um, in terms of how it 
develops and evolves over time. So we don't want to see them skipping those, and we don't want to see them significantly delayed or even um, less delayed because we, can, we find that those delays can sometimes uh, cause further delays in other areas like cognitive areas because those gross motor skills actually um, show as the, the, the different parts of the brain from the brainstem to the cerebellum uh, and further on to higher um, parts of the brain develop, there, there is an order. So if we delay development in, in the lower parts of the brain, uh, we're going to see delays later on in things like cognitive skills and social skills as well. Mm. Quick question regarding, you know, there's some children, and I'm talking babies, of course, where um, a, a lot of parents come to me and say, you know, my baby cries too much and won't sleep and um, crying all night long, and we have to hold my, our baby Otherwise, she or he will cry. Do you think that's a sign as well? So, I, I mean, every child, like you know, every child is different too. One, one of the things that if a child can't self-soothe, there's likely can be a number of different things. It could be a digestive issue. So a lot of kids that have trouble sleeping at night um, are, are having reflux problems, which are um, something we want to take a look at because if their digestion isn't working properly, as you know, um, they're not getting the nutrients they need, and there's, there's, there's usually a reason for that. Um, the other thing is that that's usually a clear indicator if they're having a reflux problems too is that, that they're, they're in a, paras- uh, sorry, a sympathetic state, so they're actually stressed a lot of the time, the, the, the baby system. So we want to look to why that might be. Um, if they can't get themselves into a parasympathetic or a rest and digest state um, to, um, to, to deal with that. But, but the other thing is that the children that typically can't self-soothe also often have sensory integration issues. So that is another um, sign and symptom of having some kind of neurodevelopmental challenge. So that's when our, their overall sensory systems can't integrate um, what's going on around them. And uh, they have that inability, certain things, um, like in the case of being held, um, that's obviously a touch and, and that's a purpose. They're, they're, they're getting that input from someone holding them. And that can be soothing too. Obviously, it depends on the, the stage and, and age of the baby um, as well in terms of the, the crying and not being able to sleep through the night. But often there, there are a number of different things going on there, not just one thing. Hmm. Right. You mentioned earlier, we talked about, you said something a little bit about the gut and the food possibility that they're having a digestive issue. I mean, how does, how much does nutrition play in, uh, you know, in helping children with neurodevelopment disorders like autism and DHEA, um, I'm saying DHEA, excuse me, ADHD, (laughs) forgive me, DHEA. Oh my God, I'm thinking about hormones. Um, ADHD. Yes, very much so. So one thing uh, that a lot of parents in particular have children that have um, autism, often they're told um, by their um, physicians uh, that have been traditionally trained that they'll say that that's just autistic diarrhea or autistic, you know, constipation, like the, the autism causes the constipation. And what we now know is that that's actually the reverse. It's that those the gut, the gut and the brain are um, are bidirectional in terms of how they interact. But a lot of these kids are just physically uncomfortable. So um, the behaviors that you're seeing, um, especially if they are nonverbal, um, you're going to see um, a lot of uh, outward 
um, upset because they can't communicate otherwise. But one of the things we want to always um, look at with these kids is their gut function for a, a number of different reasons. Obviously, um, di- uh, optimal digestion is necessary to um, make sure that they don't have nutrient deficiencies because no matter what we're feeding them, if they don't digest it appropriately, they're not going to be, break, be able to break down and absorb those nutrients. Um, and if they have gut dysfunction further down in their, their GI tract, they're also um, obviously going to have, they may develop leaky gut. So they're going to get abnormal proteins into the bloodstream, which again can cause uh, wreak havoc in lots of different ways uh, throughout the body, uh, both with the brain and with other um, systems and functions in the body. And our GI tract is, if they're, they're having constipation issues in particular, which a lot of these children have, um, it's one of our uh, pathways for detoxification. So we're, they aren't going to be able to um, carry those uh, toxin, uh, toxins out of the body um, on a regular basis. And um, again, as, as the, they often will then develop a leaky gut, they will be leaching back into the system and um, causing further havoc um, throughout the body as well. So it, proper digestion and um, gut function is imperative uh, in order to resolve many of the symptoms that these kids are having. Mm. Uh, what kind of tests do you do? <coughs> Excuse me. What kind of tests do you recommend uh, for leaky gut and looking at the digestive uh, functionality? Yeah. So a, a lot of um, a lot of times the the best way to, to to find out what's going on is with um, either a comprehensive stool analysis or a GI map, and that that will give us a really good look at inflammatory markers. Um, whether we have um, overgrowth of different types of bacteria, uh, good and bad bacteria, the balance of those in order to determine whether or not we have any dysbiosis going on. Um, it, it can also give us some indication if there's any kind of other type of gut infection like parasitic infection um, that we might be dealing with. And will also tell us that whether we um, have some indicators that we're, we're dealing with um, uh, leaky gut as well. Uh, I like to typically combine that with um, a, uh, an MRT test uh, for food intolerances, and that's so that we can see if we have a leaky gut, we're likely going to be dealing with a number of food intolerances, and um, when we have uh, food intolerances, uh, intolerances and sensitivities um, and we continue to eat those foods, we're going to have a very difficult time healing that gut and um, sealing back up and reintroducing those foods. So those are the two that um, we usually start out with. And then a, a lot of times um, we may want to look further at things like an, an oat or organic acid test as well to see what kind of metabolites that uh, are being produced and um, other types of things like neurotransmitter imbalances and, um, and whether uh, also confirmation of some of the other overgrowth and infections that might be having, happening at that time. Yeah, nowadays, you know, way back when, when I started my practice, there was nothing available. But now we've got so many different laboratories uh, that are specifically helping us figure out and get, the, get down to the root causes a lot of, of the um, issues that, that everyone, uh, our children are dealing with. The O-test is excellent. I love the O-test, uh, Tara. I love the fact that you can look at various different types of about 70 to 75, I think 75 different uh, biomarkers coming out of urine. It's a lot easier 
um, when it's a, an infant, it's harder to collect. Uh, but uh, for anyone who's a toddler and up, you can get the urine, first morning urine. And we get to look and see if they're having trouble with their vitamins and their brain chemistry, uh, if they have high a possibility of high candida or yeast overgrowth or mold issues, um, and even bacterial overgrowth. And, um, and, and like I said, again, on, on nutrients. So I think that's an excellent, excellent uh, test to work with. I also work on, um, with children, the mycotoxin. Uh, GPL, Great Plains Lab, has mycotoxin testing. And the GPL tox, which is the chemicals. You, you mentioned earlier about our environment and the toxicity of our environment with so many chemicals. And the GPL tox can be so, um, you know, valuable in helping your child uh, get rid. I mean, first understand what kind of chemicals they're exposed to. And then um, you start working with people like you to cleanse it out and make sure that, that they're, they're going to be getting the child in the best state. Yeah. I was going to say that it's a very good point. That's a a fabulous test, and it's it's interesting to find that I think that a lot of times we, when we go go into this, we are always looking at at how to flush those toxins out. But it's also just as important to try to minimize the ones that are going in. And a test like that can show us um, whether what we are doing currently is actually working. Because a lot of times we think we've limited those exposures, and then the exposures are coming from places we never expected. Um, like, you know, our water supply, for example, um, no matter what, what you do, some, there, there are going to be some things that are going to come through in the water supply. So being able to test um, to see what's actually happening in the body is incredibly important. And I love things like actually, you know, as, as, as tough as it is to catch urine with little kids, it's actually a lot easier to do that than get a blood draw. So <laughs> doing a urine test often is, is um, a lot less traumatic for, for the kids and uh, the parents. And like you said, when you have a great practitioner to work with, with those testing, they are invaluable. Exactly. Another thing that we always deal with at parents is the little ones are not I mean, they're so picky with their food, you know, what they want to eat. And they're, some of them are so, like, um, restricted. They restrict them, restricted them themselves. Like, they only want to eat five different foods, and that's about it. So what can you share to help our listeners how we can get our, our little ones to be able to start loving all forms of food so that they get all the nutrients, valuable nutrients necessary so that then, then they can really develop their brains in a much healthier way? Yeah, well, it, it is. I'd say it's, it's one of the biggest challenges that most of the parents that I talk to have, because um, our kids can be picky in many different ways. And um, so, usually, what I want to do first is find out what kind of a picky eater they are, and they can have multiple areas where the root cause of their picky eating is coming from. So, the the first one that a lot of parents are dealing with, and it becomes a, it, they they tend to pick up on it a lot faster is the sensory part. So we were talking before about that sensory processing challenges that, that these kids tend to have. And um, so they all of a sudden, they're, they're eating a food that has a texture or it can even be the sound when they're chewing it that's a problem, uh, the smell of it um, or the taste of it being, it being too spicy, too sweet, whatever that, that, that particular um, taste that they have trouble integrating. Um, it, it can be the swallowing itself. Um, uh, unfortunately, my poor daughter had a terrible hyperactive um, gag reflex uh, and, and challenges around that. So swallowing food 
we often would not get through a meal when she was younger without her vomiting at the end of the meal. It was always this fine line between how much, you know, we were successful at getting into her before she ha- she threw everything up. Um, and that was, in her case, it was an issue around um, the swallowing. And and then, then obviously, the chewing of food, so different tastes and textures and, and, uh, and types of foods chew differently. So the sensory challenge is the first thing we, we want to find out. And, and I usually get parents to do keep a food, mood, sleep, and poop journal so that they're tracking because then you start to see these patterns that come up. Then the, the next thing that can lead to picky eating is um, what we can say are either addictions or to foods or food additives. And, and what I say about addictions, it, it just is actually a biochemical um, response to eating a particular type of food. So the one that's most common is gluten and casein. And we know that when um, we don't digest them appropriately, we can end up with um, uh, proteins into the bloodstream uh, called glutamorphins or caseomorphins. And they are, like the name implies, they're, they're like an opiate-type uh, um, uh, protein in the body and can have sort of an opiate-like impact on the brain. And because of that, when your child eats their mac and cheese, um, which you know a lot of our kids love, um, they are actually getting this almost like a high. So it's like that's where the comfort food thing comes from for a lot of people. Um, they eat that food. It makes them feel amazing for a, a point in time, and so they, they crave it more. And then there's also um, certain types of foods that have um, things like phenols and salicylates and that also have can have that uh, reaction uh, for for of that sort of addictive quality to it, and then starches and sugars. So our kids that love to crave starches and sugars, and that a lot often has to, uh, to do with uh, their blood sugar levels. So their blood sugar drops, and they really really crave um, starches and sugars, and they they uh, want them right away. Um, and then the next thing in terms of determining what type of picky eater they are it goes back to digestion, which we talked about earlier. Um, a lot of the kids have really poor digestion, and they may not like an entire food group. So, for example, protein. If your child has low stomach acidity, they will likely not like to eat um, any proteins because they don't digest them well, and they feel awful after eating them. And that can happen with lots of different types of foods. But if they have poor digestion, they're going to have that feeling, and they'll start to avoid certain whole food groups or types of foods that they don't digest well, like fats or proteins. And then there's the kids that just don't like a change in their routine, and we have lots of those that we're dealing with. And then the last one is that kids will also obviously model our behavior. Um, so if we don't like something and we aren't willing to eat it in front of them, then they might model that as well. So like everything else we talk about, it's never usually just one thing, but if you can sort of identify which of these five things, uh, types of picky eating that your child tends to present with the most and start working on those things, um, then we can tend to make a dent in um, the, the, the limited food selections. You know, um, I know I've, I took a look at your website and all the great, great resources. You also have, I, I think it's called Picky Eating Eating No More. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Tell us a little bit about that because I think that's going to be where a lot of parents would be so happy to, to work with that so that they can figure out how to help their children right away. Yeah. So it's, what it is is um, I have a, a – 
uh, it's a, well, I'm going to give you, uh, everybody that's listening today, a, a free guide, uh, which sort of summarizes what we were just, a part of what we were just talking about and more. Uh, but it, it really just walks parents through helping them identify what type of picky eater they have. What is, you know, what is picky eating really? What type of picky eater they have? And then what kind of solutions for these different picky eating problems that we see? What do we need to do to make those changes um, so that we can then move forward and start to involve our, um, our children and, and get them eating more um, a variety of food? Because one of the things, like you know, is that, for example, the more variety of vegetables that we can get um, our children to eat, it helps feed our microbiome. So that gut goes right back to the gut. So if you can't get your children to eat um, a great variety of vegetables, you're going to struggle with keeping them with good gut, gut health over time. So we, we really need to fix the picky eating in order to fix some of these underlying um, problems. And But yet we also need to address these underlying problems in mm. order to get rid of the picky eating. So it's one of those catch-22. So um, uh, th- that's why I think it's really important to do that. And that's why I wanted to give a free guide to everybody that uh, is listening today. Fantastic. You can get that on our um, notes on our page, uh, you know, on the Radio MD page for the show. Thank you so much, Terry. Before we leave, again, let's let's just share your website is mychildwillthrive.com. Is there anything else that we can do to help people get get to know you better? Oh, well, I mean, obviously you can come to the website. If you like listening to podcasts like this great one, um, you, you can also subscribe um, to the My Child Will Thrive podcast on iTunes. That's fantastic. MyChildWillThrive.com. And Tara, thank you so much. Amazing information. Really appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me, Dr. Suzanne. I really appreciate it too. You bet, you bet. Okay, Wow. Again, thank you so much, Tara. We had a great, great time chatting with you all about neurodevelopment uh, disorders. And your website is mychildwillthrive.com. This is amazing. And if, if thank you so much for listening to the show. And if you've learned a great deal, and I know you have such great, valuable information, uh, please share this with your loved ones. It can change their life for the better. And subscribe. You know, if you haven't already, we will continue to do our very best here on Wellness for Life. If you need help in digging deeper with your health issues, I work with people all around the world and through phone and Skype. My contact info is available on my website, drsuzanne.com. Until next time, go out there and live your best life today, full of energy and enthusiasm on ultimate health and wellness. This is Dr. Suzanne sharing natural strategies on the Wellness for Life show right here on Radio MD. Stay well.